So this episode is the first to focus on what you might call soon-to-be major inventions, the sharing economy. What is the sharing economy? Due to the fact it's still relatively new, it has come to mean several things. Though I think it's fair to say the sharing economy has now become an umbrella term for several things. The collaborative economy, on-demand economy, gig economy, freelance economy, or even the smartphone app economy. The sharing economy is basically a lending resource in which consumers may act as both providers of resources or users of resources. The examples that have most permeated the collective consciousness would be Uber and Airbnb. In Airbnb, somebody, anybody, can rent out a room for money or rent out somebody else's room. With Uber, anybody can use their car as a taxi and drive people around for money. It is unknown who first used the term. Leading sharing economy expert Alex Stephanie to say that the term has no guardian and is therefore vulnerable to loose definitions. So let's see if we can solve that out a little bit. Quote unquote, the people who share is one of the broadest definitions of the term. This encompasses the on-demand economy, the gig economy, and a great deal else. Academic definitions tend to be narrower, mostly so academics can justify hefty research grants by finding arbitrary things to argue about. Though in this case, I think there is some justification in limiting the scope of the sharing economy to -to peer-to-peer transactions. But for the sake of ease, we shall ignore much of the broader academic argument and for the purposes of this podcast, we will talk about the broader forms of the sharing economy. Not just consumer to consumer, but business to consumer as well. In the early part of the 20 teens, many people involved with the sharing economy did indeed consider it to be about sharing in the traditional sense. A commonly used example at the time was the idea of sharing a power drill, a tool a consumer might use for only a few minutes in their lifetime. Advocates said it made sense for regular consumers not to buy their own power drill, but to borrow from others instead, and that this borrowing could be facilitated by online platforms. Several startup companies were formed to help people share drills and similar goods along these lines. Yet many of these failed as the novelty wore off and there wasn't quite enough demand for these services. A lot of the literature on the topic of the sharing economy uses catchy names like collaborative economy, on-demand economy, but the best way to divide the sharing economy is to put it in four broad categories. Recirculation of goods, increased utilisation of durable assets, exchange of services 
and a sharing of productive assets. The origins of the first, recirculation of goods, dates to 1995, with the founding of eBay and Craigslist, two marketplaces for recirculation of goods that are now firmly part of the mainstream consumer experience. By 2010, many similar sites had launched, including ThreadUp and ThreadFlip for apparel, free exchange sites like FreeCycle and Yerdle, and barter sites such as SwapStyle.com. There are now online exchanges for almost everything. Apparel, books, toys, sporting equipment, furniture, home goods, and many more. The second type are platforms that facilitate the use of durable goods and assets more intensively. In wealthy nations, households purchase products or property that is not used at capacity, like spare rooms or lawnmowers. Here, the innovator was Zipcar, a company that placed vehicles in convenient locations and offered hourly rentals. After the 2009 recession, renting assets became more economically attractive and similar initiatives proliferated. In transportation, these include car rental sites, ride sharing, ride services and bicycle sharing. The third practice is service exchange. Its origins lie in time banking, which in the United States began in the 1980s to provide opportunities for the unemployed. Time banks are community-based, non-profit, multilateral barter sites in which services are traded on the basis of time spent, according to the principle that every member's time is valued equally. In contrast to other platforms, time banks have not grown rapidly, in part because of the demanding nature of maintaining an equal trading ratio. There are also a number of monetized service exchanges, such as TaskRabbit and Zali, which pair users who need tasks done with people who want them done. The fourth category consists of efforts focused on sharing assets or space in order to enable production rather than consumption. Cooperatives are the historic form of these. They have been operating since the 19th century, but there has been a recent uptick in new ones. Related initiatives include hackerspaces, which grew out of informal computer hacking sessions, markerspaces, which provide shared tools, and co-working spaces or communal offices. Other production sites include educational platforms such as Skillshare.com and Peer-to-Peer University that aims to supplant traditional educational initiatives by democratising access to skills and knowledge and promoting peer instruction. Beyond novelty and the pull of new technologies, participants tend to be motivated by economic, environmental and social factors. Sharing economy sites are generally lower in cost than market alternatives particularly with peer-to-peer sites. Value can be redistributed across the supply chain to producers and consumers and away from middlemen. An Airbnb host, for example, can deliver a room more cheaply than a hotel. 
The platform's fees are also lower than what most established businesses can extract in profit. Service and labour exchange platforms, whether they are time banks or for-profit platforms like TaskRabbit, extract far less value than traditional agencies that arrange childcare, concierge services or home health care aids. The platforms also allow people to earn money in ways that had not previously been safely or easily available. Researcher Christopher Koopman, an author of a study by George Mason University economists, said that the sharing economy, quote, allows people to take idle capital and turn them into revenue sources, close quotes. A study in the Review of European Economic Policy noted that the sharing economy has the potential to bring many benefits for the economy, while noting that this presupposes that the success of the sharing economy's services reflects their business models, rather than regulatory arbitrage from avoiding the regulation that affects traditional businesses. To summarise, the benefits of the sharing economy include reducing negative environmental impacts through decreasing the amount of goods needed to be produced, thus cutting down on industrial pollution. Lowering consumer costs by borrowing and recycling items, providing people with access to goods who can't afford to buy them, accelerating sustainable consumption and production patterns in cities around the globe, and increased flexibility of work hours and wages for independent contractors of the sharing economy. But why is the sharing economy, or as it should be called, the renting economy, such a great invention? Or why will it be such a great invention? The answer is that it could offer a complete sea change in the way business works, or to be less hyperbolic, a corollary to the modern capitalist consumer material culture we live in. I do think this change will be slow and gradual, with an app here or there with enough money and hype behind it to catch fire and become a success. The history of the sharing economy has been littered with failures. It takes an amazing app or website developed at just the right time in the right industry for creative disruption for something to happen and for network effects to take shape. The history of the internet is littered with idealism, some of it genuine, some of it like Mark Zuckerberg of Facebook and not so genuine. The original sharing economy led to people dreaming of a utopia where everything we own would be rented and shared and everything will be available for us to use, creating an egalitarian effect and a great benefit for the environment without all the added production. If the first five to ten years have proved anything, is that it's going to be a corporate-led initiative to disrupt a solid market and one that can make great profits. Huge resources will be thrown and have been thrown at the likes of Uber, Lyft and Airbnb. Perhaps when the sharing economy has become second nature to us, as we've learned to use it from the corporations, it will diverge into more community-based and in more cooperative ways. That might take a while though. Companies for hundreds, if not thousands of years, have been built on the same model. 
You go into a store, buy something, and now you own it. That's the whole transaction. But we're seeing a new move. You may never need to own a car in the future. All the stress of its repairs and looking after it will be gone. Where I live, you used to be able to walk around the city centre and see a spate of bright yellow bikes all around the city. This Chinese art offer were bicycles meant for short-term cycling for 30 minutes or less and useful for quick hops across the city. Well, they were, until the vandalism levels were so high that the company pulled out of the city. But the real-world impact of the sharing economy has been limited thus far to a few high-flying industries. So where next for the sharing economy? Matchmaking, sensing, connectivity and data emerging into single systems. Philip Evans envisions in Borges' map navigating a world of digital disruption that, quote, every person and object is connected to every other, close quotes. In this not too distant world, potential renters will have an instantaneous view of the availability and the conditions of shareable goods because they will all have online presences. In this connected and frictionless world, intermediaries and matchmaking will decline because buyers and sellers will interact directly. Logistics. As self-driving cars, drones and delivery robots come online, the effort and expense of transferring goods will fall and the potential market for shareable goods will expand hugely. Enforcement. Blockchains, smart contracts and other code innovations that regulate payment, enforcement and terms and conditions are rapidly maturing. A blockchain, a distributed bookkeeper, can help document asset provenance, usage history and identity. The Ethereum blockchain, one of several competing ledgers, supports smart contracts that automatically release the payments when certain conditions are met. See the Monetary Revolution podcast for more. Within the business-to-consumer market, sharing has moved beyond rides and rooms. Startups have started to offer shared workspaces, storage and delivery and logistics, a category that includes pet sitting and parking spaces. These are the third most popular targets of funding. Companies including WeWork and Roomy have received nearly $2 billion in investments. Sharing also has the potential to reshape product design. Take vehicles. Where a car and ride sharing market develops, people no longer have to compromise with buying all-purpose cars. Minivans are often used for hauling children and gear, commuting to work and going out for an evening with the kids. But you could find a car that could do all these specific tasks better than one general all-purpose car. With sharing a viable option, there may no longer need to be one car. When taking the kids somewhere, you can rent a minibus or a saloon car. When you need large amounts of luggage, you can rent a pickup truck or an estate car. For a romantic getaway, you can pick a sports car. This may result in niche products becoming more and more popular. 
One wonders if you push this to extremis, where it will lead you. If you are Volkswagen or Toyota, with all the range of cars they offer, might you be tempted into starting a car sharing app? Will we think of these companies as not things we buy, but rent? Instead of using Uber, you may simply buy access to Volkswagen's range of cars and be able to use any of them you want to when you need to. If I can make one prediction on the future of the sharing economy, it's that the one thing the internet has done time and time again is to change the hierarchy of business to remove more and more middlemen. Companies will offer their services straight to the consumer. No need for office staff booking your taxi ride. It will make the cost of the transaction become cheaper and cheaper and more cost effective for consumers. As we go through this podcast, one of the main themes will be the law of unintended consequences. If spare rooms are lent out ever more easily, without the need for parasitic landlords, rooms will get ever cheaper, and more people will be able to stay and move around. People will find it even easier to move cities and around the country, without the need for time-consuming and costly renting standards. And who knows where this might lead? The other trend with the sharing economy is, with the lack of costs, we will very likely see these companies rack up huge profits while their workers get very little. The rise of the sharing economy is not happening in a vacuum. Non-traditional renting services are gaining traction everywhere. We use Spotify and Apple Music to stream music rather than buy. We use cloud services rather than keeping files on our own hard drives and building our own cloud network. We use Netflix and Amazon Prime to stream TV shows rather than buying DVDs. The sharing economy lets us use only what we want to use and to avoid the costs of ownership. That is a great invention. It should be noted that this podcast is titled 100 Greatest Inventions of All Time. Great comes from the Old English word great to mean big and is of West Germanic origin related to the Dutch Groot and German Gross. Meaning this is not my 100 favourite inventions of all time or even the 100 best inventions of all time but the 100 greatest. The sharing economy may not be my favourite, but it will, I think, be one that defines our lives very soon, which is why I've included it. And so here we get onto the criticisms of the sharing economy, which isn't without its well-deserved critics. With the economy having been through a downward slump after the Great Recession, and still not fully fixed, not only did people not want to buy things, they were more inclined to try and make money in other ways. Lyft and Uber may have disproportionately gained from the full-time taxi drivers finding their old jobs less profitable and joining on a casual basis. All this casual work lowers labour costs for the companies as the company is not responsible for giving the workers sick pay, annual leave or secure regular hours. And in America, health insurance. Non-permanent workers can be simply dismissed without notice, providing no job security for workers. One of the reasons Uber can make things so much cheaper than incumbents is by not employing staff, 
but using these casual workers who will work for less and less as the job is so easy to get and it leads to a race for the bottom in terms of wages. Uber and Airbnb are also under fire for circumventing regulations. Due to its casual nature compared to say taxi drivers in London who go through a rigorous training process to memorise most of the streets of London, Uber drivers don't have to. The undermining of traditional business does not adhere to Schumpeter's notion of disruptive innovation, but also hints at unfair business practices as they can provide a cheaper service which isn't necessarily fair for companies who play by established rules. The for-profit sector of the sharing economy has been criticised for extracting profits from their given sector by, quote, successfully making an end run around the existing costs of doing businesses, taxes, regulations and insurance, close quotes. Susie Cagle noted that the benefits big sharing economy players might be making for themselves aren't trickling down, as if they ever did, and that the sharing economy at present doesn't build trust, as it often just replicates old patterns of privileged access for some and denial for others. William Alden wrote that, quote, the so-called sharing economy is supposed to offer a new kind of capitalism, one where regular folks, enabled by efficient online platforms, can turn their fallow assets into cash machines. But the reality is that these markets also tend to attract a class of well-heeled professional operators who outperform the amateurs, just like the rest of the economy. The sharing economy isn't a fully tangible area of business yet. There is still a problem with definition. The original dream was to create a cooperative of like-minded people offering services or products and for others to do likewise. People wanting to share things they rarely need and use things they rarely share. To offer up free assets like time in exchange for goods. To get rid of waste, to take power away from corporations by decentralising and democratising goods and services. And yet we've ended up in a system where corporations have monopolised almost all the benefits of this demand. Uber takes 30% for matchmaking. Airbnb take 15% for matchmaking. This is probably not what the dreamers had in mind. But to me, there is still something intriguing about the idea. First, it has the potential to do great things for people less well off by letting them share and rent rather than buy. It streamlines services by cutting out the middleman. It reduces waste and helps the environment though admittedly there is plenty more it could do in that area. But moreover, it could fundamentally alter the way we use and consume products and services. It could entirely alter the way we interact with the commercial world. And for that reason, with all of its potential, it is listed at number 96 on our list of the greatest inventions of all time. <laughs>